You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation and with me Yet again, my co-hostess with the mostest, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla. Nice to talk to you. How are you doing? Yes. I'm fine. Such we haven't talked fleeting, in like 24 hours. Such fleeting uh, moments that we have to talk about things these days. Usually I'm just commenting on your uh, on your Twitter posts and that's about it. Yeah, well, that's what happens. Anyway, speaking of fleeting moments to talk about things, we have a lot to talk about. Okay, let's get on it. Uh, first, did you know, Paul, that the government is trying to restrict travel in BC due to COVID-19? Well, we're supposed to get some update, uh, on the day the podcast is coming out. So Friday, um, but I know that, uh, Mike Farnworth was on the radio before me, uh, yesterday, yesterday, and it sounded like they were walking back some of the things that John Horgan said at the beginning of the week. And of course, we've seen uh, the Ontario government has completely backed away from its many threats. Yes. So to give a bit of a procedural history here, um, on last week on, on in Ontario, um, they announced right after the podcast came out that they were going to be doing random traffic stops to ensure that people were following their stay-at-home orders, um, and that was, you know, fine. Uh, and then we had, um, uh, and then we had the uh, provincial government of BC on what was it Monday, <laughs> announcing that we're going to be doing the same thing here, which was crazy because John Horgan came out. There was a, a technical briefing for members of the media prior to the uh, the regular COVID briefing. Usually that means new restrictions, updates on something significant. Everybody was thinking, oh, you know, maybe it's a, um, maybe it's a, um, a, a vaccine rollout, like for, for over 40 for the Pfizer or for the AstraZeneca. I don't, I can't think I'm at the end of my day here. Um, AstraZeneca vaccine. Nope, that wasn't it. Turns out it was travel restrictions that were not discussed at the technical briefing. And then at the end, um, John Horgan said, hey, yeah, we're going to do random stops of people, which, of course, put the entire province into a tailspin. And he also said that you you can't be traveling outside of your, your health region uh, unless you've got a good reason. And they're going to be, police are going to be stopping you to check your reason. And if your reason isn't good, you're going to be getting a ticket. Like, you haven't even left the region necessarily yet. <laughs> but if your reason isn't good. Yeah. So the evidence, or the, the discussion of that was terrible. Because everybody thought this is horrible. I, I gave a bunch of media interviews about how unconstitutional it was and how shocked I was that the government was doing this and not, you know, going to the most extreme measures and not trying something lesser first. And the next day, there was some clarification. I'm doing air quotes. You can't see it, but I'm doing them from Mike Barnworth to say, okay, well, actually, we're not going to do random traffic stops. We're going to set up roadblocks. So it's going to be like counterattack where there's going to be roadblocks at key areas. 
Yep. Okay. Okay. So they're going to block Highway 1? Block, block Highway to... 1. That's super safe. Yeah. So uh, are they going to stop people who live uh, who live two blocks uh, east of uh, Boundary from driving into Vancouver to go to the Shell station to buy gas? I mean, sure. what, are, what are they going to do? What, what, how are they going to deal with this? They're going to stop me from walking my dog at the closest park to my house, which happens to be in Burnaby. Yeah, there you go. So um, that was pretty ridiculous. And you can see what they're trying to do. I mean, they're just trying to scare people. Uh, but I had all sorts of people who are really scared phoning me saying, you know, text messages from people, look, am I going to get harassed or am I going to get hassled when I go wherever? Uh, and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, you know, like I don't want to really be pulled over and scrutinized. Um, you know, who, it's none of their goddamn business, uh, what I'm doing. I might have some private reason that's, that's very private. Uh, that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, for, for a reason that I may need to travel and, and, and it could be embarrassing, but it's none yeah. of their, none of their you business. Might, you might finally be getting that surgery for your uncontrollable diarrhea. Thanks. Yeah. But <laughs> who knows? This is not true listeners. It's just... the, uh, the, I don't know the surgery you can get for that, but, but no, I mean, it's like the, uh, you might be, you know, yeah, you might. Maybe you've decided that you want to have some special therapy for something. Um, yeah. But the point is, you know, we have we still have a free society and we still have a charter of rights and you still have freedom of movement. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's there's restrictions on these provisions that, that uh, I mean, there's restrictions that can be placed on you in a pandemic. And so far, it mm-hmm. seems that every constitutional challenge to something that's been run, uh, the government has done fairly well on. Uh, but, you know, they've got lots of, of hurdles here. And, and the number one hurdle that you and I talked about, um, was, you know, how do you gain the evidence that the person is actually, you know, violating the law? I mean, we haven't seen how the law is going to be written yet. Most of the time when the government, you know, comes out and says, this is what we're doing, they have, have fully fleshed it out or almost fully fleshed out what their plan is. And John Horgan coming out on Monday was a completely not fleshed out thing. Uh, probably it kind of seemed like it wasn't even planned. Panicky desperation is what it came yeah. out across as. And, you know, you can understand panicky desperation in Ontario because they've really dropped the ball. There's people in BC who hate the government right now because they feel that we haven't done what needs to be done in schools, which is, I guess, from their perspective, close all the schools. Um, mm-hmm. And I understand that people have that perspective. I don't agree with it. Uh, but the, um, you know, for the most part, if you look at it, we've done pretty well uh, compared to many other jurisdictions. But, you know, maybe they know something we don't know, which is, you know, this one thing that can be, they, they, they can determine, and that is how many cases are we facing two weeks down the road? And there's various ways that they can determine that, including examining sewage um, and, and, uh, identifying the, the amount of cast off COVID that's in the sewage system, they can tell. And you're thinking to yourself, all of these predictions that they've got for Ontario, where they're looking at potentially 20,000 cases a day, uh, in two weeks time, you know, do they know something like that in BC? And maybe, you know, that, that's what led me to be very concerned when I heard about this. But the question is like, you know, are, uh, how are police and people going to react to roadblocks, mm-hmm. you know, you still have freedom of movement. If you're, if your mother lives in the Okanagan and you feel it's necessary to go check on your mother, is that not a good enough excuse? 
mm-hmm. you know, what's going to constitute a good excuse. So hopefully we have some indication tomorrow, today, which is today in, in podcast land, what the government's going to do. Yep. But even like, even if there is something that they, you know, they come out with that allows police to ask you these questions. I thought we'd spend a moment talking about what happens when you're pulled over at a roadblock and you're forced to answer questions, provide information, or participate in the process. Okay. Please go ahead. I I thought you'd pick up there and and (laughs) enlighten our listeners. So, All right. So when you're pulled over at a roadblock, it is essentially an arbitrary stop. And the government are entitled, you know, the police are entitled to stop you. And they're entitled to stop you to check sobriety and license status. Uh, And that should be the end of the inquiry unless there's something else that comes up that allows them to investigate further. Kyla? Yes. And that information that they gain that allows them to investigate further is only admissible for the purposes later on of saying, I had grounds to investigate further on the basis of this. It is not admissible to prove any fact at trial. So if under this, you know, power that they're going to be granting or this emergency order that they're going to be making, if they require people to answer questions about the purpose of their travel, and somebody says, you know, pulls over and then they're asked, where are you going? It's like, well, I want to go water skiing on the lake in Kelowna. And they're charged with traveling for a non-essential purpose outside their health authority. That statement should not be admissible against them to prove that they were violating the health order. And the reason for that, of course, is you have a right to counsel. You have a right to talk to a lawyer before you uh, are uh, questioned and answer uh, answer questions from the police when you are being investigated for a potential offense. So the police yeah. have detained you unless it's like a spontaneous declaration. Uh, and even then, you know, there's an inquiry that has to be made as to whether or not it is uh, admissible evidence, but it's sort of presumptively inadmissible when you've been detained and your right to counsel, you haven't been notified of your right to talk to a lawyer and you haven't had an opportunity to talk to a lawyer before you're being questioned. So the answers that are obtained are not admissible for the purpose of of prosecuting that offense. And that is the problem that John Horgan did not seem to understand when he said you've got to have a good excuse. And, you know, frankly, a lot of police officers don't understand it or don't know when it begins or ends. And I mean, even if I was in the circumstance of being pulled over, I would, you know, I'm a criminal defense lawyer who's done this for a long time, but I would still probably need to look at it as a forensic uh, assessment later on to determine what would be admissible and what wouldn't be. But, you know, one could imagine that every one of these things would end up with a, a person making an application to court for a remedy under the charter. Uh, that the evidence be ruled inadmissible because their right to counsel was violated before they made the statement. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I have no idea yet how this health order is going to be enforceable, and if it is enforceable, how it is going to be able to be prosecuted if enforcement prevents people from traveling and results in tickets. Which is fascinating. Prosecutable? Yeah. Is prosecutable Prosecutable? Award? I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> it is now. <laughs> my um, podcast, I can make up words. Yeah, go ahead. I'm with you. So though. that's really interesting. Now, I also wanted to just use that and the health orders as a bit of a jumping off point, because we've seen, as you mentioned, lots of challenges to these health orders 
all of which have been universally unsuccessful. We've also seen a lot of people really angry about health orders related to their travel, and in particular, quarantine after travel. And uh, one individual named uh, Makan Singh Parhar uh, recently filed a court application in Parhar Court. This is not a real court, but he filed it in the BC Supreme Court Registry, but labeled it in the Parhar Court, uh, against John Horgan, Adrian Dix, Dave Jansen, I don't know who that is, David Eby, and Adrian Switzer, who's a prosecutor that you and I have dealt with in the past. Yes. And it essentially sputtered off all that same nonsense that we saw posted on the door of that corduroy restaurant in Colorado <laughs> that was shut down. Yeah, yeah. You know, about trespass and, yeah. and uh, yeah. other you know, other nonsense. Mm-hmm. And of course the attorney general brought an application on behalf of itself and all of the other defendants um, to strike the claim on the basis that it was frivolous, vexatious, and disclosed no reasonable claim of action. And what I thought was really interesting about this that has nothing to do with any of the quarantine orders, but like I said, I'm just using our travel restrictions discussion as a jumping off point here, um, were some comments that were made by the attorney general in their submissions pointing the finger at the court to say, it isn't fair that we have to keep coming to court applying to strike these claims against us um, because it's expensive and and it costs us a lot of money and it's it's time-consuming and these litigants are difficult to deal with. In court, why don't you do better at keeping these claims from coming to court? Yeah, I mean, I, I see their point. Um, why don't the, basically what they're looking for is a court order that keeps um, individuals from filing such things, maybe you know some creating another process with the court's inherent jurisdiction to create a process, uh, create another process to weed these claims out. Why not? Mm-hmm. You think that the you think that the attorney general's office should not be asking for that? Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm saying that, and and perhaps this quote from the court will uh, help help um, enlighten you on my position. I'm saying that it's a little bit rich for the attorney general to be standing there and saying, court, why don't you do more to help us? Because as the court says at paragraph 44 of this judgment, well, the AGDC suggests that there is inadequate screening of these sorts of troublesome proceedings, something that he would do well to take up through other channels, In practice, these matters are often screened at the time of filing because they are more commonly accompanied by an application for waiver of the filing fees and so on. Isn't that interesting, though? The Attorney General goes to the court and is like, fix this. The court's like, you have to write the legislation. Well, yeah, but they don't. I mean, Supreme Court rules. The Supreme Court can come and create their own rules. They're entitled to create their own rules. They've got that authority. And, and the uh, AG's probably looking at it, hang on, the AG's probably looking at it and saying to themselves, you know, we, every time we try and, and uh, impose something on the court, they keep striking it down. We try to, you know, create these uh, limits on ICBC and these things get struck down. Why don't you guys just come up with a, a rule that says that if you're filing certain claims that the registry can set them aside and say that the person has to submit a written application to be able to file that claim, at which point it can be vetted by a judge. 
I love that you brought this back to the ICBC driving law issue because it, it we've now threaded it through to two entire driving law issues. If you recall, Paul, when the ICBC rules were changed, or the actually the court rules were changed that said in personal injuries litigation arising out of a motor vehicle act, there's a cap on the number of experts that you can have. What the attorney general did was he changed the court rules. He amended the court rules to put this limit in place. And he has the power to do that. The problem and the reason the court struck it down was that, one, it was hamstringing the, the power of the court in an unconstitutional way. But more importantly, it was done without any consultation whatsoever. The AG didn't seek input from stakeholders in the legal community. The AG didn't seek input from the court or the chief justice or the rules committee of judges. Um, none of those people were consulted. I can guarantee you that literally everybody who is a stakeholder or who has an interest would support an amendment to the rules to allow the court to literally just dismiss out of hand anything that, that raises a bunch of free men on the land type nonsense. So it is actually something the attorney general can do and something <sighs> that indubitably would not survive constitutional challenge. Well, I'm sure it's something that's coming down the down the pipe because it's well, uh, I can only hope. <laughs> the, uh, the, the we have the ongoing issue um, which is fascinating really um, you know you can see that that uh, some of these crazy ideas have gotten out on the internet they've been repeated and repeated by people who uh, who are sympathetic to the to the um, <laughs> the particularly weak arguments that are advanced and uh, and now they're just getting repeated, and people think that this this is somehow there's some legal basis to it, and there of course there's nothing. But um, you know, this is a problem that we have in society. Maybe it's I, I think it's internet connected. I think it may be partially because um, the way that knowledge is spread now, we are less likely to defer to experts. Um, mm -hmm. There's a there's a few different sort of factors that play into how this is happening. Uh, but, uh, and it's also, I think people just angry at their lack of understanding of the system. Yeah. I mean, fair enough. But as, as I was saying, I, I think the attorney general would do well to make the, those amendments to the rules and then it would save everybody a lot of headache and it would save a lot of court time. Indeed. Indeed. Now, moving on to yet another topic. Uh, a very interesting uh, blog post that was written on uh, Eric McGracken's bc-injury-law.com blog about a case where ICBC was ordered to pay special costs for its reprehensible tactics, is what the court called them, in a lawsuit over a guy who was injured while on a bus. So thank you, Eric, for pointing this out with your blog, because I love these cases. Um, in this case, uh, Mr. Zhang uh, was riding on a bus, and a truck driver made an unsafe lane change in front of the bus. The bus driver had to brake suddenly to try and not cause an accident. And Mr. Zhang was thrown from his seat, and he suffered multiple injuries as a result of it. The truck driver didn't remain at the scene, was unknown. So Mr. Zhang sues ICBC as the, you know, as the representative plaintiff, in the in the unidentified motorist litigation. So what happens if there's an unidentified motorist, you sue ICBC, and that's what happens. ICBC had video from the bus 
they actually had a video of Mr. Zhang falling down from the bus, all of the bus's surveillance video. Yeah. And they did not give it to Mr. Zhang. Wow. Entire incident captured on video. Now, in civil, in criminal litigation, the Crown has an obligation to disclose everything in its possession, and the defendant doesn't have to disclose anything except for some really creepy provisions of the criminal code that are probably unconstitutional related to sexual assault, and also if you have an alibi and charter notice and expert notice. But beyond that, you have no disclosure obligation to the Crown. In civil litigation, there is mutual disclosure obligations. So the plaintiff has to disclose its you know, list of documents and its information to the defendant, and the defendant has to do the same. It has to provide a list of any documents that are in its possession that are relevant to the issue. Obviously, a video capturing the other driver, capturing the incident, capturing the injuries and how they were sustained and the force with which Mr. Zhang fell is clearly relevant. They waited years to produce this, didn't put it on their list of documents, didn't do anything, and also told Mr. Zhang that he didn't even have the right to sue under uh, the unidentified motorist legislation. They just denied that he had such a claim. They denied that this this happened um, and, and essentially denied that his injuries even occurred. And the court really, really mad about it. So the court says, I find the the delayed disclosure of the video supports an award of special costs. The footage was clear and overwhelming evidence as to what actually occurred and was so integral to the case on liability that the production delay rises to the level of reprehensible conduct. The defendants offered no explanation for their late disclosure. Isn't that insane? That is awful. That is awful. I just found the case. I just went to Eric's uh, blog and found it, and I've been reading it and listening to you at the same time. It is disgusting. Uh, you know, the people th- th- that are saying is... it's all your fault. For the cost for litigation. Meanwhile, they don't disclose the video. A video, you know, video evidence is just so damn important. Uh, eyewitnesses are, are confusing. People's memories are weak and frail. Uh, you're trying to uh, sort things out on the basis of that. A lot of the time, you know, you're, you're not going to get to the right answer. But when you've got video, and they're sitting on the video, and they won't cough it up, you know, you kind of got to think that ICBC should do some soul searching at some point. But instead, it always just feels like, you know, it's circling the wagons instead of soul searching. Like they, they, they're just. About how much more expensive the litigation became because they, you know, the, the video shows that he has this claim under Section 24. They spent all this time arguing that maybe he didn't. You know, you have to hire experts to talk about how the injuries were sustained that you wouldn't have had to hire if you had a video showing what happened. Ugh, so bad. It's horrible. Oh. See, he's uh, citing uh, Mayor and Osborne contracting here um, for the proposition about uh, conduct that makes the resolution of an issue far more difficult than it mm-hmm. uh, than it should have been. Yep. Yeah. Uh, cut him a check, and now and now ICBC is paying special costs, probably tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending. You know, this went all the way to trial, right? And that's all coming out of taxpayer money. That's that bottom line at ICBC. How many other cases has ICBC been 
you know, deliberately withholding evidence where maybe it didn't get discovered that leads to unnecessary complex and lengthy litigation. I would bet that uh, that the uh, individual here probably would have been happy with sixty five thousand uh, <laughs> dollars, and ICBC probably balked and offered him thirty five hundred dollars or something like that. It, I'd love to know the negotiations, but I can tell you that is not uncommon. That would be not an uncommon scenario based on what I hear from ICBC lawyers. Frustrating. So that happened. Now, I know we're jumping all over, but there's been so much driving law that has happened in the last week that we have a lot to talk about. Um, I also wanted to talk about a recent judicial review decision in the IRP scheme involving an individual by the name of Anthony Zamani, uh, who applied for uh, judicial review of a decision of the superintendent of motor vehicles related to his driving prohibition. And he um, was uh, unsuccessful in his judicial review, but he represented himself. And I wanted to talk a little bit about why it's a bad idea to represent yourself, in particular because of the facts of this case. So Mr. Zamani um, had submitted a video in his case the officer had said that, that he formed the grounds for Mr. Zamani to be given the ASD demand because he had bloodshot eyes and an odor of liquor on his breath. Mr. Zamani said he was smoking a cigar, so there's no way the officer could have smelled liquor on his breath. And he definitely didn't have bloodshot eyes. And he submitted a video recording that he took during the incident that showed that his eyes were not bloodshot. He also said that he was having a panic attack and, and that this impacted his ability to blow. And the superintendent looked at the video and, uh, and acknowledged, in fact, that there was, uh, there was no, uh, no bloodshot eyes. Um, the, the superintendent's adjudicator uh, says, you have submitted that the officer lied in the report when he stated that you are stuttering as you were clearly not. I have reviewed the video evidence. Um, sorry, the wrong paragraph here. Um, you next note that the officer has lied when he indicated you had bloodshot eyes. I have reviewed the video and still photograph evidence you have provided, and I acknowledge that your eyes do not appear to be bloodshot at the time the video was recorded. Consequently, I find the officer was at best mistaken and at worst has been dishonest with respect to his evidence on this point. Accepting the latter, I find that this affects the credibility and reliability of his evidence on this point, and I will take this into consideration when weighing the totality of the evidence before me. Now, that's the first and last mention of the officer potentially lying in his evidence. Uh, the adjudicator dismisses this whole issue of the cigar and, and says, I find it plausible, particularly during an impaired driving investigation, that an officer would be able to detect an odor of liquor while someone is also smoking. Okay. Whatever. Based yeah. on what? Based yeah. on what? But okay. And then also she says he was stuttering and that his speech was slow in the video and that he was argumentative and angry. Of course. And of course, so, stuttering is not a symptom of impairment. So, no, um, stuttering is a speech impediment. Yes. And then the adjudicator 
uh, rejects his panic attack argument, saying, I find it inconsistent for you to have the capacity to maintain an ongoing conversation with the officer while also asserting that you did not have sufficient capacity to provide a suitable amount of air into an ASD. I find it odd that if you were sober, as you assert, then you would not have at least made an attempt to provide a suitable breath sample. Rather, the evidence before me is that after the demand was made, you immediately refused by stating, I'm not providing anything and I'm not blowing. So, obviously, he makes this argument on judicial review that the adjudicator can't just find that the officer lied and then not deal with it in the credibility assessment. But it doesn't appear that anywhere in his argument did he produce any case law, make any you know reference to any authorities as to why that would be unreasonable to not consider it when weighing the totality of the evidence um, or, or any of these issues. And so uh, the... Superintendent succeeded on the judicial review, even though they upheld a prohibition where they made a finding that the officer lied. And, and the court says, well, I may have rejected Constable Dahlman's evidence with regard to the odor of liquor emanating from the petitioner's breath because of the finding of dishonesty relating to the petitioner's bloodshot eyes. I cannot say that the adjudicator's determination of credibility amounts to exceptional circumstances and should be interfered with. There's no requirement That's not the standard. of the law of judicial review for exceptional circumstances to exist before the court intervenes. It's whether or not the reasons are, are transparent, justified, and intelligible, whether there's a, a pathway to the reasoning that does not uh, result in a manifest flaw in reasoning. There's no use of the term exceptional anywhere in Vavilov or anywhere in any of the jurisprudence that has dealt with this question of whether or not a decision is reasonable. All you have to do is demonstrate that the path to the decision was wrong. Yeah. That's what the all they the should have to do. The decision was wrong. Well, I mean, the, you know, here's the thing. If you're a self-represented litigant and you go in there, lots of times you'll end up with a judge who's, like, sympathetic and patches up your case for you. Um, so, you know, apparently the judge in this case didn't do that, but also apparently did not properly instruct themselves on the law if this is in fact the case. So this is something that should go to the court of appeal. Mm -hmm. uh, but even if the person had stood there and, you know, handed up all of those cases and shouldn't have to hand up Vavilov, it's Supreme Court of Canada decision, uh, or any of the other cases, frankly, um, you know, if you show up there and you've got all of these, these uh, cases on this topic that uh, essentially say the same thing uh, at this point, it's not, it's not magic. Um, the, uh, of course, the guy could have bought your book and just handed up your book. Problem solved. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the uh, you know, it's the, it's the failure of the court. It's not the failure of this guy to be a self-represented litigant. The, the, you know, the court is also expected to know the law. Well, I mean, I, I, I would say that if you're going to argue something complex, like the law of judicial review, you probably should get a lawyer. Um. You know, they, uh, what is the phrase? You know, it's not one that I ever use, but ignorance of the law is, is not an excuse. Um, sure. you know, at the same time, the court is expected to know the law. You know, so when we have this obligation as lawyers to hand up the relevant cases, if there's relevant cases, we know about it, whether good or bad, we hand them up. And, you know, sometimes you're not handing up the bad case because you know, your, your friend, the other lawyer is going to be handing up the bad case. And if it's right on point, you certainly have an obligation to bring it up if you're going to try and distinguish it. But there's still an expectation that even if you don't file a book of authorities, uh, you know, it's a book of authorities. It may be a handy way for the court to figure it out. 
there's still an expectation for the court to know the law and, if necessary, for a judge to get on their computer and, and look it up. What is the issue there? What is the standard for this again? Okay, there's cases on this. Oh, somebody's already dealt with this. You know, mm-hmm. they, they have clerks there. So anyway, that's what I wanted to talk about about that. Now, uh, it's time, Paul. All week you've been looking forward to this. I'm always looking forward to the ridiculous driver of the week. The ridiculous driver of the week. It's the ridiculous driver of the week. This week brought to us by Alora. Um, who is a law student working for us, who is wonderful, um, and will one day be an associate at the office. Just a matter of time. Just Um, a matter of time. She won my heart with meatballs. Anyway, (laughs) you have to go to my Twitter feed to figure that one out. Go ahead, Kyla. So what's the ridiculous driver of the week? So Alora sent me a story posted in the Daily Mail. Uh, A driver in Mexico who was moving... Um, and decided he didn't want to make multiple trips in his pickup truck. So he loaded every single piece of furniture and every belonging that he owned onto his Ford F-150 pickup truck. There are photos. You can find this if you search a whole home on the highway. You'll find it online. Uh, So it's a picture of a a white Ford F-150 with, Cabinets, bed frames, dressers, couches, bookcases, looks like a rain bucket, um, and a, a platform that looks like it's made out of a box spring, um, all wrapped in ropes and put onto this F-150, which is sitting very low uh, to the uh, to the ground. Um, as a result of having this guy's like literal entire worldly possessions loaded onto it. I don't even know how he managed to do this, but it's insane. We're going to have to make sure that we put the link on the, uh, with the, on Twitter at least for this, because I can't find it. I want to see it now. Whole home on the, on the uh, highway. I have uh, done similar things to that, uh, in my life. Remember a few years ago, there was one guy who had a snowmobile up on the roof of his, uh, of his Ford crown Victoria, and they were trying to track him down. <laughs> Because yes. the police didn't what think that was safe. I don't know whatever you. happened with him. I remember once when I was in my early 20s, my uh, the uh, woman I was living with uh, and myself were driving back to Edmonton from Jasper and we decided we wanted to replace our sofa. So we quickly stopped at Ikea, uh, bought a sofa and loaded it on the roof of a Nissan Micra and then drove it across Edmonton <laughs> with a, a sofa that was the size of the Micra. Managed to make it, but uh, uh, probably had we been pulled over, the police would uh, would have put a stop to us. Um, yeah. Yep. I can believe these, that. These things happen. <laughs> yep. Well, uh, this is this is it's worth finding the photos, and I've uh, I've sent them to our podcast producer Lewis, who will um, include a link in the uh, in the the podcast post when we post it. I'm still. Uh, uh, at a loss for how that guy got the snowmobile on the roof of the of the, of the uh, Crown Victoria. Drove it up there. Uh, to me, it looked like if you know if you got it on there, you just leave it there, you know, just bolt yeah. it down, and and that's it. Well, I I will never know. But what I can tell you, Paul, is that's our podcast. Oh my goodness, came and went yeah. very quickly. Well, this is early in the evening for us. I'm I still have energy. You have none. 
you're depleted. Well, I've been working very hard all day. Yeah, you have. Well, so have I. I had piles on my desk, and my desk was clean when I left the office. So. Oh, I was out of the office for half the afternoon because I was in, in uh, out of the office but in court, but not physically in court on video. And I'm sure when I get back to the office tomorrow morning, there will be a bunch of stuff on my desk. That's the way it goes. Mm-hmm. All right. If you have a driving law-related issue, you can give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.